Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. In this special podcast, Robert Strimsley discusses the FT's choice of George Soros as Person of the Year with editor Lionel Barber and deputy editor Rula Halaf. So, Lionel, slightly different approach this year, selecting someone as much for what he represents as for what he's done in the year. What were the reasons we went for George Soros? Liberal democracy in the world today is under attack. Liberal values are under attack, whether it be through Vladimir Putin's Russia, Donald Trump's America, or social media. The clampdown in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Hungary, George Soros's birthplace, Mr. Orban, Viktor Orban is the new autocrat. So I think we decided collectively, because it is a collective decision, it's not a decision by the editor, to choose an individual who we think represents very important values today. And those are liberal democracy and the open society. Rula, just before we get into this in detail, perhaps for those who only know one thing about George Soros, and there's normally a lot of people who know one thing about him, tell us just a bit about his history and his background. In Britain, George Soros is best known for making a massive bet against the pound in 1992. And he's known as the man who broke the Bank of England. George Soros was a speculator for a long time, made a huge fortune, but he began his philanthropy very early on, in fact, as he started to make his money. So in the late 70s, Soros figured that he can use his money to promote change in Eastern Europe, and he started in Hungary. Even before then, though, he'd visited South Africa, and he started funding black students at an all-white university. The Cold War was, in a way, George Soros' biggest opportunity because he'd been there, he'd been on the ground, he'd been helping a lot of dissident groups. And with the fall of the Berlin Wall after that, he tried to promote a sort of martial plan for Eastern Europe. Nobody listened to him. And so what he did was he sort of created his own martial plan, started funding scientists, for instance, actually paying salaries for scientists. And that's how he became known as a huge European philanthropist. Where did Soros come from? Soros came from a Jewish family in Hungary. When the Germans invaded, his family, who had been assimilated, took on different identity papers, and so they hid. They essentially went into hiding. The family spread out, and George was sent to live with different people at different times. And after that, when Hungary came under communist rule, George decided, and he was only 17, he decided... He didn't want to live under communist rule. And so he came to London and he went to the London School of Economics. And that's where he met the philosopher Karl Popper and came under sort of the intellectual influence of Karl Popper, who had written a lot about the open society, closed societies versus open societies. That gave him a kind of the foundation for his philanthropy and for his philanthropic thinking. But Soros is himself very much of a philosopher. He thinks of himself as a philosopher. He often says he's a failed philosopher. And when I met him, I was telling him that, to me, he's an active philosopher because instead of just thinking and writing, and he's written a dozen books, he's actually tried to implement his thinking and the values that he truly believes in. So that's much of the positive case for George Soros. He is obviously immensely polarising figure. Lionel, what would you say are the negatives, the things that people don't like about him? They don't like the fact that he's 
political with a capital P. He uses his money for political purposes. Now, I can try and think of some negatives, but we made him person of the year, so I think we'll stay with the positives for a moment. And the real point is he uses money for political change and to defend certain values. So regimes like Viktor Orban's, who's closed his university down in Budapest, and they've had to move to Vienna, they don't like him because he criticizes the government. He criticizes the regime. He protects the right of dissent and alternative values. I think in Britain, where we have a very divisive debate still over Brexit and Britain's decision to leave the European Union, George Soros is unapologetically in favor of a second referendum and he's funding groups and individuals who are making the case for a second vote. Now, that's why someone like Nigel Farage, the one-time leader of the UK Independence Party and one of the biggest political figures who successfully promoted the case for leaving, they think literally, and I'm quoting, that George Soros is the most dangerous man in the Western world. One of the arguments that's made against him, I was interesting to read some of the comments when we published our piece, was, well, he's just another billionaire dabbling in politics and you, the FT, are quite critical often of billionaires, the Koch brothers, for example. So why is he better than them? The Koch brothers use their money to promote political causes, political action groups, yes. But I would argue that George Soros is a philanthropist as opposed to just a political operative. And if you think of the money that he's given, I mean, I've known George Soros for 30 years. I can still remember meeting him when he turned up in a Washington dinner party in around 1988 and talked about the end of communism in Central Eastern Europe and the right of dissidents, etc., and he's been on the, largely on the right side of history. He's a philanthropist in the sense that he cares about people who are oppressed, people marginalized and in difficulty. Take the Rohingyas, Muslims, for example, from uh, Myanmar, who are forcibly deported into neighboring Bangladesh. They're in camps in terribly squalid conditions. I mean, George Soros will have a conversation over dinner about the risks of landslides. I mean, that's how much he cares. Really? I think you have to separate two different activities. The Open Society Foundations fund civil society, okay? Personally, he gets involved in politics. And I think that a lot of critics have confused the two things. So George Soros does not actually get involved in Hungarian politics. What George Soros does is fund a lot of civil society groups, human rights groups, investigative journalism groups who fight for the values that he believes in, for democracy, for human rights, for the rule of law. Now, as an individual, George Soros also gets involved in politics. No one can deny this, but mostly in the US. Mm -hmm. That is the one place where he has taken a political position and where he used to be a Reagan Republican, but he has become a Democrat. And that all started during the George W. Bush administration because he very, very strongly believed that the war on terror was a huge mistake and he wasn't mm -hmm. wrong. But I think it is very important to distinguish these two activities, the personal versus the civil society support. Yeah, it's human rights, the right to dissent, as opposed to party politics. And he's had quite a torrid year, hasn't he, Rula? 
I can't think of anyone who's had a worse year in a way than George Soros because he has become the boogeyman for every populist, every nationalist, every alt-right. He's always been criticized, I think, in very right-wing circles. But you would find this in chat rooms, for instance, in alt-right chat rooms. But the criticism has really now reached the mainstream. And I think in part, not only because Viktor Orban decided to make him the biggest enemy of Hungary, but also because Donald Trump has joined he in the vilification. He blamed him for the caravan of migrants, particularly, didn't he? He blamed him for the caravan of migrants. And I'm not saying, I mean, some groups that George Soros supports, that the Open Society Foundation supports, may very well have helped some of these migrants. But he has been blamed for everything. Roseanne Barr's tweeted very nasty claims against him. But also the attacker of the synagogue in Pittsburgh. I think people who've looked into his background have also seen that he seemed to have been inspired by anti-Soros propaganda. And I think it hurts George tremendously that people are instrumentalizing him in order to kill Lionel, he's been the target of a bomb plot. He's become almost the face of anti-Semitic tropes as well, hasn't he, across the world? Yeah, that's one of the most disturbing trends, as we know through recent polls, that anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic sentiment in Europe has been rising. And as Rula says, the most disturbing phenomenon is that he's been a victim and a target of conspiracy theories. And it's the old anti-Semitic trope that somehow the speculator the man with the money, the man who made money out of markets, Mm -hmm. puppet master, yes, who's pulling the strings. And, you know, he is a very rich man. He's made a lot of money. He's worth certainly over $10 billion, $20 billion, probably more. But I would argue that he's used his money carefully and he's used his money in defense of tolerance and the right to dissent in society. Do you think there's any validity to the criticism of the way he's made his money? Well, let's just take the first example that Rula mentioned, which is 1992, and the fact that he made a billion pounds from betting against the pound. Now, this was a very simple insight that was this. The British government had committed, first of all, to put the pound in an exchange rate mechanism, which limited the amount of fluctuation for the currency. It was eventually, it was a sort of fixed but adjustable exchange rate mechanism, and it was locked in too high. So he, he was making a simple proposition that actually the pound wasn't worth that amount of money. And in order to defend the value of the pound at that time, the government would have to raise interest rates to an unsustainable level. And he was right, because at 15% plus, they buckled and we were ejected from the ERM. And of course, it broke the Conservative Party's reputation for sensible economic management. But people who criticise George Soros for making the money, one, don't understand how markets work. And second, forget conveniently that out of that debacle, out of that ruin, actually, there was a very sensible exchange rate policy and economic management run by the Conservative government, which laid the foundations for 15-plus years of prosperity based on a flexible exchange rate. So, Ruler, you went to interview him. I mean, he's an 88-year-old man. He's a target of bomb plots. He's a global villain to a significant proportion of the world. But you actually found him quite upbeat. Yeah, in a tough assignment, being sent to Marrakesh or <laughs> sending yourself to Marrakesh. Well, it was a day trip, to be yeah. fair. It was a day trip. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a hardship. But no, it was it was actually really enjoyable. And to get to spend two and a half hours with George Soros was fascinating to me. 
he's aware, you know, he is someone who reads ferociously and who is aware of everything that's being said about him. So I don't think anybody's hiding from him how he is being vilified. But I think he still finds that what he's doing is right. It's worth it and that he can still make a difference. He'd just been in South Africa when I went to see him. And in fact, whatever question I asked was irrelevant because he was sitting there and he was going to tell me about South Africa. He'd just been to South Africa. It was the 25th anniversary of the foundation in South Africa. And he didn't know that there was an allegedly corrupt contract for a nuclear power plant that'd been in the works with Russia. And as we know, he's a huge critic of Putin. And he didn't know that that contract had been exposed and that the groups that he funds and that he supports were involved in stopping this contract. And, you know, he was energized by this. He thought that, you know, I can still make a difference. But it's not only there that he can still make a difference. He is making a difference. I mean, I wherever I go uh, all over the world, I often meet people whose only funding comes from George Soros and from the Open Society Foundation. You can't imagine how many people, t- t- how many Democrats are surviving only because of his support. And, and tell us what he's like to talk to. Is it fast? Is he deliberate? Paint, paint a picture of what he's like to talk with. He's very, very reflective, very pensive. He thinks before he answers. And he often answers by saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but this is what I think. He was also thinking a lot, I, I don't know why at that particular time, about his speech at Davos. He always gives a speech at Davos that makes a splash. And he was thinking about what he wants to say. And he said that he wants to talk about China at Davos. So in this interview, he doesn't want to talk about China. You know, he does compartmentalize. And he's funny. He's got a really nice sense of humor. He can make fun of, you know, self-deprecating. He makes fun of himself. And, you know, like any 88-year-old man, he's thinking about today. But what also it reminds like him of... Like any 88-year-old billionaire. He's, he, he, <laughs> well, he reminded me of the way I talk to my father because he's still very sharp. He can have amazing intellectual conversations, but he does go back to the past and he's thinking all along, you know, what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? How do I explain it? And he's always interested in what you think about it. He's one of the world's great intellectuals. In my mind, you can have a conversation over dinner with him, which is so rich and reflective. He knows his history. He does like an edge of gossip. If you can tell a little insight about an individual or a world leader... He loves that, but he thinks big picture. He's conscious of history's sweep. He likes to make the big judgments, but he will do that on the basis of considered information. And he's one of these individuals who will make a big call based on serious reflection. So, for example, he's interesting to talk about Europe. While he supports the idea, for example, of a second vote for Britain to go back into the European Union, he's by no means uncritical of the European Union. He thinks it's actually become a technocratic bureaucratic exercise. And he's very critical of the operation of the single currency, for example. He's critical of German economic policy. So for all these reasons, he's absolutely fascinating. And the last point is he also loves technology and he's become rather deaf. And so he has these extraordinary earphones and you have to speak through a microphone. So in this way, he'll pick up the sound and you can have a completely ordinary conversation. But if you didn't have that technology, you'd be challenged. 
Ruler, one thing that's often raised against him, I see particularly the right-wing tropes about him, is that he, he somehow collaborated with the Nazis when he was much younger. That's not correct, you think? No, I don't think that's correct at all. But I can tell you where this comes from. At one point, he was sent by his father to live with an agricultural official. Official worked at the agricultural industry in Hungary. He was 13, 14 at the time. And that official had to go and take inventory of some of the properties that belonged to Jews, but the Jews had left. And he was there. He was with him at one point. Now, why did the story come out? He was asked at one point uh, by an interviewer on 60 Minutes about this incident. And he seemed completely taken aback. I mean, if if you watch, and I've watched that interview. Very open. Well, he, he just says, yeah. I mean, he kind of treats his as if, you know, there was nothing wrong with those circumstances. And he says, yes, yeah, and maybe this is like the markets because he always goes back and thinks about the market. And that clip, nobody has had another clip that erases that early clip, it was 60 Minutes. And a lot of people just refer to that clip, even under our story, I say, but have you seen this clip? And I think also because his family was assimilated, because he's not a practicing Jew, he doesn't really believe. He's also he's quite critical of Israel, isn't he? He's critical of Israel, and the Israeli right wing is very critical of him. I mean, you know, Netanyahu meets Viktor Orban exactly at the time when Viktor Orban has a massive campaign against George Soros. So I think for all these reasons, some of his critics say, well, you know, he's not a real Jew and he doesn't care about Jews, which that is really, really far from the Jews. I think he was extremely hurt by the attack on the synagogue, not least because it was done in a way almost in his name. Yeah. Lionel, if we could perhaps talk about the process by which we choose Person of the Year a little bit. It's fair to say, isn't it, that we often go into this meeting having really no idea how it's going to end. It's an open society, more or less. We don't have members of the public. I would say it's democratic. It's important to understand that this is not an arbitrary judgment. So we consult all the journalists at the FT. We send out an email, and there are 560, 70 journalists around the world, and we solicit names. We don't have, at that point, a firm view of who we would suggest. But we then hold a meeting, which people are invited to, the columnists, the leader writers, the people who write the editorials, the senior staff. And we have a debate where we say, OK, here are the names that have attracted the most votes amongst staff. What do we think of them? And we debate the various merits. We say, well, what will it look like in a year's time? And inevitably, we have somebody who helpfully suggests, well, would we have made Adolf Hitler the FT person of the year in 1939? In other words, do you make somebody the person just because they're of historical importance. This is an important point, is it? Because we've always steered away from major newsworthy figures if we think they do not represent values we share. This is correct, although we did make Lloyd Blankfein person of the year, I think in 2010 or 11, essentially because Lloyd um, Blankfein was chairman, chief executive of Goldman Sachs. It was probably the bank at that point with JP Morgan Chase that came out of the crisis and was the strongest and they were trying to reinvent themselves. I mean, subsequent one or two problems in Malaysia, you might think slightly differently. But anyway, we made that choice, and that was controversial. We got a lot of attacks, essentially saying that we were supporting vampire squids, so to speak. We were supporting the financial community too close. I think on this occasion, and in full disclosure, and I don't want to make you 
blush, Robert, but you did suggest George Soros, and you made the case based on values rather than singular achievements. In fact, as as a correspondent in Southeast Asia, John Reed reminded me by email this week, he had suggested George Soros last year. And I think just Rulo said it had been a tough year for George Soros. But also, we really felt that this was the moment to choose. And I have to say, but when you proposed George Soros, it just felt right. So the question was then, could we listen to some alternatives? And obviously, uh, maybe not so obviously, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, was was put up. And a reasonable case made for Macron. Because this was about six weeks ago, wasn't it? So it was before, before the gilets really it was the It was definitely yeah. pre-gilets jaunes. But you know, Macron made a magnificent speech before a joint session of Congress, essentially defending the kind of liberal values and liberal democracy that we've so praised in George Soros. But he's obviously made some missteps, a bit too aloof, Jupiterian, whatever. So we discarded Macron. And then we all coalesced. I think people felt pretty good about George Soros. And the reaction from our readers has been tremendous. Well, it's definitely provoked debate and comment, which is, after all, one of the main purposes of the Person of the Year Award. So thank you to Lionel and Ruler. I think we're probably already looking forward to figuring out who we're going to choose next year. And you can read the full interview with George Soros at ft.com slash Soros. That was Robert Shrimsley talking to Lionel Barber and Rula Halaf. We'll be back with another news feature next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.